The insinuation that Queen Elizabeth promoted colonialism is a misrepresentation of the underlying dynamic of the Second Elizabethan Age, which was the Queen's transformation of the crown from an emblem of dominion into a symbol of free and voluntary association called the Commonwealth, which has served as a forum to promote good governance, education, economic development, and human rights since its inception in 1949. You might not know this, but when Queen Elizabeth died last week, her son Charles became king of more than just the United Kingdom. He's now the monarch of 14 additional countries around the world, including Canada, Australia, and a handful of Caribbean nations. These nations, also known as realms, are part of the Commonwealth. That's a larger club of 56 nations that grew out of the British Empire. They account for more than 2.5 billion people, nearly a third of the global population. Queen Elizabeth II made more than 200 visits to these nations. Here she is speaking about the importance of the alliance in 1947 on her 21st birthday in South Africa. I welcome the opportunity to speak to all the peoples of the British Commonwealth and Empire, wherever they live, whatever race they come from, and whatever language they speak. As I speak to you today, I am 6,000 miles from the country where I was born. But I am certainly not 6,000 miles from home. Everywhere I have traveled, my parents, my sister and I have been taken to the heart of their people. The Commonwealth has a complicated history, growing out of the empire and a colonial past. So without Queen Elizabeth at the heart of the Commonwealth, what does the future look like? We'll get into all that and more after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember to connect with us on Twitter at 1A. Let's get into the conversation. Amy McKinnon is a regular on the Friday News Roundup. She's a national security and intelligence reporter with Foreign Policy. Amy, it's always great to have you on. Glad to be here. So to people who might not be aware, what is the British Commonwealth in the simplest of terms? Okay, I mean, that's a really great question. Um, As the accent might give away, I'm actually British, and we even really don't fully understand, I think, what the Commonwealth is. It's something that you hear of in passing in speeches from the from the Queen, from the royal family. But um, it was kind of only when I began to report on this that I really came to understand what it is. But it was, in short, it was founded in 1949, kind of at the beginning of a wave of independence movements which swept across Africa and South Asia, which was the kind of bulk of, of where the British Empire was. And it was kind of a way for these newly independent countries that were former members of the British Empire to kind of hang together, um, but without having to swear their allegiance necessarily to the British crown. And in many reasons, I mean, the timing of when it was conceived in 1949 was two years after India gained its independence. And India was, of course, integral to the British Empire. It was known as the, the crown jewel of the British Empire. And so in many ways, it was intended to kind of keep India in particular in the British orbit, but without having to force the Indians to swear their allegiance to the crown. Um, there is a distinction between the Commonwealth, which today has 56 members, and and countries and realms, so countries where the Queen is the head of state. So as you said in the introduction, there's 14 countries where she's head of state, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, a lot of countries in the Caribbean, um, and most of them are members of the Commonwealth. But these are two kind of distinct but but connected uh, entities. So there's the Commonwealth and those who also see the British monarch as head of state. In his first speech as king, Charles referred to this group of nations. Alongside the personal grief 
that all my family are feeling. We also share with so many of you in the United Kingdom, in all the countries where the Queen was head of state, in the Commonwealth and across the world, a deep sense of gratitude for the more than 70 years in which my mother as Queen served the people of so many nations. Amy, what does membership in the Commonwealth require? So membership is voluntary. Countries can come and go as they wish. And interestingly, in recent years, we've actually seen countries that weren't members of the former British Empire, such as Rwanda and Mozambique, have decided to join. Um, But it's a very good question. I mean, especially at the time when these countries were pushing further independence from the British Empire, when you have, you know, legacies of brutality and slavery in the British Empire, why would they want to join this kind of association with their former colonial ruler? I asked this of, of Priya Satya, who's a historian of the British Empire at Stanford. And she explained to me that, you know, at the at the time when these countries became independent, it was often the more moderate wings that initially took power. Um, so in India and Pakistan, for example, the first post-independence leaders of those countries were educated in the UK and so had felt kind of ties to the country. And a lot of them felt that it was kind of, it was good politics to be on good terms with the, with the former colonial power. There's, of course, a larger context to this, which is this was at the time when the Cold War was really heating up and the Soviet Union and America were really competing for influence uh, in the Southern Hemisphere, and particularly among these newly independent countries. And so the Commonwealth provided a kind of a framework, an international partnership for these countries to not be completely isolated, but without them having to declare allegiance to either the kind of the Soviet bloc or the Western bloc. Well, most of the Commonwealth realms in the Caribbean, including Belize, have British the British monarch as their head of state. Tomorrow marks Belize's Independent Days, Independence Day, rather, celebrating the country's freedom from Great Britain. So let's turn now to Henry Charles Usher. He's the Minister of Public Service, Constitutional, Political Reform, and Religious Form for the country of Belize. Minister Usher, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So in March of this year, after Prince William and Princess Kate Middleton toured your country, you released the following statement, quote, perhaps it is time for Belize to take the next step in truly owning our independence, but it is a matter that the people of Belize must decide on, end quote. A constitutional referendum is set to consider whether Belize should declare themselves a republic that would remove the monarch from the head of state, but not withdraw the country from the Commonwealth. What does it mean to you for Belize to truly own its independence? Certainly, thanks. Uh, One of our key campaign platforms was this idea of decolonization, of continuing the process of decolonization, of also deepening our democracy within Belize. For too long, um, Belizean citizens have said that they feel that they only participate in democracy every five years when they go to the polls. So it is an idea of moving away from a representative democracy to a more participatory democracy. And when I made that statement in March, yes, it was right um, before the visit of Prince William, but also it came about because we had just established what we were referring to as the People's Constitutional Commission. So the People's Constitutional Commission uh, will be given a broad mandate to look at our constitution, to look at our laws, and to see where areas of of reform are needed. One of the areas, as you rightly said, is to look at uh, whether we want to keep the monarch as our head of state, whether we want to keep the Westminster model in terms of our uh, system of government. So it's a broad mandate. And at the end of this process, the people will have a say in terms of a referendum. How much of a distinction do you see between the monarchy and the Commonwealth? 
Well, I believe that there would be no question of us wanting to leave the Commonwealth. I think it's it's critical that Belize remains a part of this uh, global organization that has done quite a bit of good for our for the membership. So the idea of having a head of state uh, move home, you know, bringing home the head of state, does not um, certainly does not indicate that we want to move away from the Commonwealth. Now, Amy, Prince William and Princess Kate faced criticism for their visits to Belize, Jamaica, and the Bahamas for not consulting with local officials prior to arriving. There are also calls for the royal family to provide reparations for slavery. How much is the call to distance countries from the Commonwealth or from the monarchy, at least, driven by the history of British colonial rule? Oh, it's absolutely driven by the history of British colonial rule. I mean, one of the kind of, I think, massive downsides of the Commonwealth is that, you know, by by definition of being tied together in this organization, I think it really, it pushed the the more brutal, the more savage legacies of colonial rule and the empire kind of back into, pushed those skeletons kind of deep in the closet. And there was almost this kind of compact of forgetting both among the newly new independence leaders, but also amongst the UK to just kind of not discuss, um, you know, these very unsavory legacies. And that continued for many, many decades. And it's really only in recent years um, that you're beginning to see more of a discussion both within the UK, but also in, in in, um, formerly colonized countries and, and members of the Commonwealth, that actually there needs to be a discussion about this, about reparations. And interestingly, you know, the Commonwealth has has in some ways kind of struggled to to find its feet as as an international organization. It has never really kind of specialized in any one thing. It's kind of been overtaken by other multilateral institutions. One thing it could provide an interesting forum for is for these conversations about, about reparations, about colonial legacies. But I think it remains to be seen whether it will actually be used for that. Minister Escher, where does Belize go from here regarding a relationship with the Commonwealth? What kind of relationship do you want? Well, we certainly want to maintain a very good relationship with members of the Commonwealth. As I said, we're not even certain where the Commission is going to go in terms of the recommendations they're going to make. It's going to be a broad-based process where they go and they consult um, in in various forms, in various various media with the people. And I think what is important is at the end of the exercise, we can make sure that it's something that the people can support. We've seen these types of constitutional reform happening in other Caribbean countries, uh, recently in Grenada, in St. Kitts. We had a a, a constitutional reform done in Chile recently that was also defeated. And the reasons for the defeating of these um, referenda, you know, there there are a number of reasons, but primarily because we feel that the final product, the product that was put to the people, was one that they did not feel comfortable with. So what we want to make sure is that whatever is taken to the people is something that they're comfortable with, it's something that they can support. Now, in terms of the Commonwealth, um, I would hazard to guess that the majority, the vast majority of Belizeans do support our membership in the Commonwealth. They want to make sure that we maintain those ties, both in the Commonwealth and in CARICOM and in SICA within Central America. We feel that coming together, having that unity is much um, more important than than going it alone, no? That's Henry Charles Usher. He's the Minister of Public Service, Constitutional and Political Reform for the country of Belize. Minister Usher, thanks for speaking with us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. 
Let's add two new voices to the conversation. Joining us from Boston is Aisha Jalal. She's a professor of history and director at the Center for South Asian Studies at Tufts. Aisha, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. And from Lagos, Nigeria, Anu Adeoye. He's the West Africa correspondent for the Financial Times. Anu, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Amy, what was the legacy of the royal family's relationship with some Commonwealth countries that Queen Elizabeth wanted to distance herself from? Well, the Commonwealth was hugely important for the Queen. And I mean, the Queen came to the throne just a few years after the Commonwealth's founding. And so, you know, the two have really only known each other. Um, it made a, made a huge amount to her personally. It made her distinct as a European royal that she was, um, you know, kind of ceremonial head of, of dozens of countries and and. and formerly head of, of 14 countries now, um, you know, and a few years before her death, she lobbied very hard to ensure that Charles would take over the ceremonial role, ceremonial role as head of the Commonwealth, which is not usually her, something that's hereditary. And so I think that really gets to, to how important it was that, that they keep this very close tie, not just with the UK, but also, you know, particularly um, with the crown. And in terms of the Queen's own role, I mean, she's a very a very potent diplomat. I mean, if British politicians really want to kind of grease the wheels diplomatically, I mean, a very easy way to kind of uh, to, to charm heads of state is to kind of bring them in for a state visit um, with the Queen, which she which she did oblige to it from time to time. And so it was also kind of, you know, she was also a very potent diplomat for the UK as well. Well, she asked that Charles be recognized as head of the Commonwealth in 2018. What was behind that request? I think that's just her wanting to keep that close relationship between the Commonwealth and the royal family. And of course, there was some controversy that she was using her her role. It's a ceremonial role, but nonetheless, I mean, it's um, when you're talking about an organization which is uh, made up of formal, mostly of formerly colonized colonized states, it of course sends a sends a quite a message if you're asking for the the sovereign to take over as as the uh, representative head of that organization. So there was there was a little bit of controversy there, but I think that was the Queen very much wanting to kind of keep keep it within the family. Anu, there are 21 countries on the African continent that are members of the Commonwealth. How well versed was the Queen in the domestic affairs of these countries? Yeah, I mean, I I spoke to an a former a foremost uh, Commonwealth expert um, recently, and she told me that the Queen that the Commonwealth was the Queen's favorite organization. I mean, obviously because she was the ceremonial head of this organization, she was very well briefed in the affairs in the domestic affairs of many of the countries who were that were part uh, that are part of the Commonwealth. She was widely traveled. She visited all but two of the um, African countries in the Commonwealth. So the Queen knew these uh, these member states. She knew about their domestic affairs, and she was very present at the biennial um, meetings of of the heads of Commonwealth states, where she she went to many of these meetings. Um, uh, obviously, she was not able to attend this year due to ill health, where uh, the now king represented her. But before um, this year, she was very present, and she used to hold various meetings um, with presidents and prime ministers who were very happy, who were very pleased to get an audience with the queen. So she was very um, immersed in the activities, and in she was uh, deeply briefed about um, how these countries worked. And we're talking about 21 countries, but but broadly speaking, how closely tied do these member countries see uh, the Commonwealth and and the monarchy as, as being connected to one another? Because we were talking to the minister from Belize in the, the first segment of the program, and while they want to remove a monarch as their head of state, they do want to remain connected to the Commonwealth, Anu. 
Yeah, I mean, if you look at all the countries, all the African countries that are in the Commonwealth, all 21 of them are Republican states. None of them have the queen as their head of, as their head of state, right? But all of them remain in the Commonwealth. Um, many of them for, ver for various reasons. Uh, we still have countries, we have countries who were not previously British colonies who joined. I mean, Togo and Gabon, who were former French colonies, joined this year. And that was because both countries, both uh, Francophone countries, they speak French. And they decided that they wanted to tap into the cultural um, eft that the Commonwealth has. And so they, and they also wanted to tap into uh, an organization where the lingua franca is English, right? Which is the, 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 the language of global trade and global commerce. So those two countries, and also because they wanted to um, diversify their foreign affairs away from what they saw as France's massive influence. And so the Commonwealth was an avenue for them uh, to, to diversify their foreign affairs. And I think um, one thing that African countries um, also see as the purpose of the Commonwealth is that it serves as a mode, it serves as a platform of sorts where issues that are important to African countries, like, like climate change and climate financing, are discussed um, in detail before being talked about in other organizations like the UN. Uh, so I think these countries have their see reason as to why they should be in the Commonwealth. But I think lastly, that being said, um, it's not the number one priority uh, in terms of foreign uh, relations for so many countries. Many countries tend to prize the regional organizations that they belong to. For example, South Africa belong to SADC, which is the Southern African um, uh, Development Council, where they are the head. So they, they tend to prioritize that more than the Commonwealth, but they still uh, see value in being members of the Commonwealth. Anu, how are African leaders dealing with the history of colonial atrocities in their countries and their relationships with the British monarchy and the Commonwealth? I'm thinking, for example, of the Mamal uprising in, in the 1950s in Kenya, which saw more than 11,000 people killed and over a million imprisoned. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a complicated relationship. Um, like you said, the Mamal um, revolution in the 1950s, it actually began in 1952, the same year that the Queen um, um, got onto the throne. Um, more than 150,000 people, Kenyans, were held in detention camps where they were sexually assaulted and tortured. Um, the relationship between modern-day Kenya and, and Britain is, uh, is, is, is thriving now. But you have people in those countries, especially um, young people who have begun to learn about the history of what happened as their country moved towards becoming an independent nation, who are not uh, as uh, effusive as their leaders were when the Queen died. I mean, um, upon the announcement of the Queen's passing, we saw um, the Ghanaian president, the, the Nigerian president, presidents from so many, from all countries on the continent, particularly the ones in the Commonwealth, were very effusive and very complimentary of the Queen and on what she represented to the Commonwealth. Um, but you had people, especially young people, who questioned and said, look, this is a good time to talk about the legacy of uh, British colonialism. And there were people who said, look, we are not holding the Queen herself um, personally responsible for many of these atrocities, but she was the ceremonial head of, uh, of a government that was responsible for many of these. And, and so it's, it's a tough balancing act um, of maintaining relationships, but also calling 
uh, calling out some of the atrocities that happened um, as many countries uh, um, be, tried to become independent countries in the uh, 50s and 40s. Well, the Queen never formally apologized, but in 2013, the UK Foreign Secretary William Hague announced a settlement on behalf of the British government. I would like to make clear now and for the first time on behalf of Her Majesty's government that we understand the pain and grievance felt by those who were involved in the events of the emergency in Kenya. The British government recognizes that Kenyans were subject to torture and other forms of ill treatment at the hands of the colonial administration. The British government sincerely regrets that these abuses took place and that they marred Kenya's progress towards independence. Anu, briefly, why was it so significant for the British government to pay these reparations? I mean, I think it was it was long coming because so many African countries had been demanding, especially Kenya, had been demanding a formal apology uh, because of what happened from 1952. And I think it was very important for the British government at the time in 2013 to formally acknowledge um, that, they were, that they were in the wrong. I, I think we shouldn't... Uh, think that the apology or the reparations will heal all, all wounds. No, it, it wouldn't. But it's, it was at the time a step in the right direction to formally acknowledge that they did things that were wrong and they should apologize for. That's Anu Adeoye, West Africa correspondent with the Financial Times. He joined us from Lagos, Nigeria. Anu, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you so much for having me. Aisha, there's been a muted response from the biggest country in the Commonwealth, India. There's an incredibly complicated history between the two countries, hundreds of years of colonial rule, during which several violent ev- events took place. Um, one of the most infamous, the Jali and Wallabag massacre. Why was this such a critical incident in the country's history? Well, because um, uh, it, it occurred uh, uh, with, with, I mean, in, in the midst of uh, uh, a, a situation of non, non-cooperation throughout India. I mean, uh, Gandhi, Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi had given a call. So it emerged within the context of an all-India movement, but it was, of course, in Amritsar, where um, uh, over 379 innocents were killed um, uh, by on orders by 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 by, by the British general, uh, and so it became a kind of a cause celebre. I mean, and 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 the fact that the British uh, uh, appointed a commission that actually uh, acquitted uh, the accused uh, uh, has always created. Uh, I mean, it's a very sore point for Indians uh, and, and South Asians generally. The Jallianwala Bagh incident, and this was another event the Queen never apologized for, even on the eve of her visit to the site in 1997, when many expected she would. A current Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi was not at the funeral, but Indian President Draupadi Murmo was there. And we should note India's president is largely a ceremonial role. But what does Modi's absence mean for the relationship between India and the monarchy? I think it's a challenge for the Commonwealth going forward. Uh, I think India's uh, attitude will largely depend on, uh, I mean, will, will, on, on what the Commonwealth allows in terms of transformation under Charles. I think it needs to transform in order to be relevant to the world. Um, and to India and, and to many other countries. India is, of course, crucial because, uh, I mean, 60% of the population of the world uh, in the Commonwealth is in India. And, uh, I mean, and, 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 I mean, India is a very major trade partner. So everything um, is, is, is connected to India. And I would, I, would, I would think that the absence of 
uh, Modi uh, at the funeral uh, designates that India wants the Commonwealth to become more relevant for it to play an active role, uh, which also points to an Indian leadership role because India is um, very much uh, a country capable of that, but that will not be without divisiveness given <coughs> South Asian politics. We're discussing the future of the Commonwealth. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. Let's bring a new voice into the conversation now. Joining us from Sydney, Australia, is Michael Miller. He's the Sydney Bureau Chief for The Washington Post. Michael, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So describe the mood in Australia since the Queen's passing and over the subsequent days of mourning. Yeah, it's uh, it's really been quite mixed. Um, I'd say most people have been quite uh, you know, mournful, respectful, somber. But, uh, you know, as this is something you touched on earlier in the program, the Crown's uh, role in some of the mistreatment of Indigenous people, especially over the past decades, uh, has kind of thrown a bit of a shadow over it and and, uh, injected a bit of controversy into the process. Some of the loudest voices kind of criticizing uh, the the Queen and the Crown more generally have been, you know, Indigenous uh, lawmakers uh, or journalists, people who say essentially that we should, you know, remember that uh, the, the Queen and the Crown, um, you know, didn't do uh, enough in their view to kind of stop some of those abuses over the past uh, century. Marine Syed Farooqi is the deputy leader of the Greens Party in Australia. And the Pakistani-born senator tweeted last Friday she gives condolences for the Queen, but that she could not, quote, mourn the leader of a racist empire built on stolen lives, land, and wealth of colonized peoples. Aisha, how are the South Asian diasporas in Commonwealth countries leading political and cultural conversations about future relationships with the monarchy? Well, I think one of the, the, the focal points is uh, the Kohinu diamond, uh, which adorns the, uh, I mean, it's one of the, the main sort of crown jewels of the, of, of the British monarchy. And I think there's a lot of talk about how to get it back. Um, uh, but I think the problem with South Asia, of course, as you're aware, is are their own internal uh, divisions. Uh, and India and Pakistan are both going to be contending for the return of the Kohinoor to them. Uh, and I think that just allows the British to perpetuate uh, the delay. But I think when it comes to diasporic conversations, uh, it's it, they revolve around apologies, uh, reparations. But reparations, I think the more thoughtful think of reparations, not something about amends for the past, but really uh, amends for the future and the present, which, I, which, which really refers to continued racism in Britain um, uh, and in, in, in myriad other di- uh, ways that, that that, that we see in the world in which the British also have a hand. So I think people, when they talk of reparations, um, uh, 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 you know, in, 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 in today's world, mean different things. Some talk about it as apologies, some talk about it in money terms, some talk about return of artifacts, and some a changed attitude towards race and, 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 and humanity, which I think is really the more important one. Um, so I think that the reparations that one is seeking today are the ones that are going to affect the present and the future um, by rethinking the way in which we look upon the past. Uh, so I think that is the, the reparations that, that, that I think I, the people are having conversations around uh, who are from South Asia. Well, Australia and New Zealand's prime ministers both made the trip to London for the funeral and had meetings with King Charles. But as you said, Michael, the monarchy's role with indigenous peoples has been controversial. In July, another Green Party lawmaker, Lydia Thorpe, referred to the the queen as a colonizer during her swearing-in ceremony. I 
sovereign Lady of Thought, who solemnly and sincerely affirm and declare that I will be faithful and I bear true allegiance to the colonising Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. Senator Thorpe. I'm going to wait for quiet. Michael, you spoke to Lydia Thorpe. What did she say about the injustices experienced by Indigenous people? Yeah, she said uh, essentially that, um, you know, while it was all fine and well to, you know, mourn the legacy of of someone like the Queen who was on the world stage for, for so many decades, uh, she said essentially that Queen Elizabeth didn't do enough, uh, hardly did anything really to kind of address a lot of the uh, racist discriminatory policies that were kind of enacted in her name uh, during her time uh, um, as monarch of Australia. So, you know, probably the biggest one would have been the stolen generations when Indigenous children were essentially taken from their families and, and put with white families. Some of them never reconnected with their birth families ever. Um, so thousands of people went through that. And uh, Senator Thorpe essentially said that uh, the Queen doesn't get a free pass and that, um, you know, yes, it's a time of mourning, but it's also an appropriate time in her mind to address this question of whether Australia should be a republic uh, and also whether it should have uh, some type of treaty um, between Indigenous people and the government here. So she really said, you know, now is not the time for kind of solemn uh, you know, uh, mournful respect, but rather this is the time to take up these issues and, and perhaps, you know, uh, have some change. And is there an appetite for those conversations in Australia right now? Uh, yes and no. So um, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese is from the left of center Labour Party. He was elected in May and he's a Republican. He wants Australia to be a republic. Um, but he said from the beginning uh, months ago that he didn't want to hold a referendum on that until his second term. So that would be at least three years away. And um, the death of the Queen has come, you know, in a sense, a little too soon for for him because his party didn't really have the time to start broaching this discussion of when and how to hold this referendum. Uh, and so, you know, he's been very careful to not push that idea in the wake of her death, but rather to say, this is not the time for it. We should focus on honoring her legacy. And then there's actually another referendum that he wants to hold first, and that's on Indigenous rights. So if that Indigenous referendum fails, it's very unlikely that a referendum on the Republic will happen anytime soon. So, you know, when I talk to people on the street, you know, talking to people in bars last night, uh, watching the funeral, you know, some of them very devoutly want Australia to become a republic and think that it should happen soon. But other ones have a little, you know, think that it should be left on off the table for a while until this kind of mourning period is, is over. And then a few, you know, want to remain part of the monarchy. It's important for them to preserve that, that tie. For more than five decades, King Charles has been outspoken on the need to address climate change and, and holding countries accountable. Here he is speaking in August of this year on CGTN Europe. Climate change and biodiversity loss as two of the world's most dire and pressing threats simply cannot be solved without China. At COP26 in Glasgow and through China's presidency of COP15, the world has made some progress towards a net zero, biodiversity positive and sustainable future. Aisha, so many of the world's most vulnerable are in the Commonwealth. I'm thinking, for instance, of 
Pakistan, which is recovering from just incredibly tragic flooding. Can an organization like the Commonwealth have success in creating a concerted global climate action plan? Well, certainly more than it has, uh, because while envi- whilst the environment is one of the focal points, uh, not much progress has been made. But I think under Charles, uh, there is hope. Uh, I mean, Charles has been very committed to this. Uh, so if he wants to pursue uh, or at least continue with the Commonwealth, which I suspect is the case, uh, I think the Commonwealth could prove to be a very good organization to, to, to bring countries of the Commonwealth together. I mean, you know, if just look at India and Pakistan. The greatest failure of the Commonwealth has been the failure to bring these two countries together on issues like climate change. I can understand that political issues like Kashmir cannot be solved easily. Uh, but what about climate change? I think there the Commonwealth's salience in the next sort of uh, few decades uh, will be determined. I mean, if it wants to continue meaningfully, I think climate change would be a very, very good place to start. We got this comment from Michael Hill, who emailed, while the legacy of the Commonwealth is steeped in colonialism, it is also true that the British used the Commonwealth to put pressure on both South Africa and what was then Rhodesia to end their racist governments. Aisha, your thoughts? Yes, I do think the Commonwealth has been used, but I do not believe that the Commonwealth was the cause for the end of racism in these countries. Uh, so I do think we need to uh, also connect, while, while that gentle pressure and not so gentle pressure was always there, it was dynamics within these countries that forced the end of these policies, uh, in which, of course, the Commonwealth then can take some credit, but it was not the main uh, motive, I mean, was not the main stimulant in this. So I do think the Commonwealth's actual achievements uh, would be difficult. I mean, I mean, I do think that if we go looking for achievements, we are bound to find them. And if a researcher goes looking for the history of the Commonwealth's failures, they'll find equally uh, sufficient uh, reasons to believe that it failed uh, in its promise. Uh, so I think it's a mixed uh, uh, legacy. It's a mixed history. Uh, but it could change for the future under Charles's uh, leadership, should he want to give it the attention and time. And, and Michael, what will you be watching in New Zealand and Australia as these conversations continue? Oh, well, uh, I think it'll be interesting to see how long the government here in Australia uh, waits to kind of start this discussion over becoming a republic. You know, I think there's been this uh, kind of uh, obviously outsurge of uh, of eulogies for the queen and uh, lots of media coverage here in Australia of it uh, as it, you know, in the United States. But at the same time, uh, we shouldn't forget that Australians, you know, went to sleep uh, on, I think it was a Thursday night with, you know, Queen Elizabeth as their queen, a monarch, and then woke up on Friday morning with uh, King Charles III. So I think that has also reminded them of the fact that they are a constitutional monarchy, that they don't have control over their head of state. And, you know, that will kind of give them pause and perhaps lead them to take up this issue of becoming a republic uh, in the next few years. That's Michael Miller. He's Sydney Bureau Chief for The Washington Post. Also with us, Aisha Jalal. She's a professor of history and director at the Center for South Asian Studies at Tufts. Aisha, Michael, thanks for joining us. Today's producers were Chris Remington and Maya Garg. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.